Well, good morning. I invite you to open your scriptures to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And then while you're turning there, I want to thank you for last week for playing the part of cunning wolves. And, uh, you know, sheep, sometimes they go astray. It's their nature. And you guys were able to sneak food in and throw a very kind uh, birthday celebration for me. And uh, I want to thank you for your love and your kindness in doing that. And people, you, so I said this in the Monday email, but people asked, were you really surprised? It's like they couldn't believe that. And yeah, I was. I have actually had no idea uh, that Steve Kubik was going to hijack the end of the service. I did wonder, though, nobody moved when I dismissed. I was like, this is odd. Something's off here. So, um, you know, trying to balance that, we just observed, you know, the Lord's Supper, and then there's, we're singing Happy Birthday, and I always have a tension in my soul about that. Um, but I had, to, I had to, like, recalibrate and say, no, they're doing what the Scriptures ask you to do. You're honoring those who labor over you. And so I was very thankful and very moving gesture. Uh, this week, uh, I was thinking about, uh, in the last eight days, the death of our 41st president, and very thankful for the country in which we live, and very thankful for the leaders that have been over us. Uh, if you put that in uh, contrast to other countries under dictators and very cruel regimes, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for. Even the ones we don't like, we have a lot to be thankful for to our God. And it struck me how much a man or a woman of character can make a difference in this world with their life. And just watching some of the, the, funeral, the funeral procession and what people were saying. And to me, the, the telltale sign is typically the response of his own family members. And folks, can we, out of all people who are followers of Jesus Christ, uh, whatever sphere of influence God has given to us, make a difference uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. So, very thankful. So with that, I think within the spirit of First. Timothy 2, when we're told to pray, to pray for kings and all those who are in authority, that we may live a peaceable life so that it may go well with us. And then in addition, because God desires people to be saved, right? That's why we're praying. So let's not, let's not squander our lives here living in a peaceful country, just serving ourselves and loving the comfort. Uh, we pray for peace so that the salvation of Jesus Christ may be known. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, bringing us to this place and allowing us to live in a country where there is no fear on anyone's part this morning to, to travel here to worship you. We didn't fear arrest or persecution or death as many of your followers did and as many of your followers do today in other countries. And so in obedience to your word, we continue to pray for our country, for all who are in authority, that you would continue to grant us peace, that your word may go forward and be honored. But Lord, deliver our country from the stupor of comfort and ease and self-fixation so that we would be obedient to Your Word, to love others as You have loved us. And as Pastor Sean had mentioned, to show that love to the world this month. 
We pray that You would give our leaders, our authorities, wisdom as they make decisions. We pray that You would give them endurance. For those who may only be a surfacy religious, we pray that Your truth would sink from their their heads down into their heart and that You would bring forth a transformation. That those who are faithful followers of Yours, true followers of Yours, that You would give them patience and steadfastness and opportunities to share verbally the good news that You love them and sent Your Son for them. Thank You again for our privilege to live in this country for the men and the women You have placed over us. We entrust them into Your hands. God, lead and guide us as a nation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I enjoy the traditions that surround Christmas. We love, um, we love putting up a tree, and we love the lights, and I love the evening glow of the lights, and sometimes go out into that room and read. Uh, we have a few of those neighbors on our street that, that really go wild with lights. There are, there are two houses, but it's still fun to drive down the road and see all the lights. I enjoy the music. Uh, I have two particular favorite CDs that we're listening to. I like a lot of the old, traditional Christmas music. And from a Christian perspective, I love December because we purposefully focus back on the incarnation. Our young people, do you know what that word means? Incarnate. It's a big word. It simply means in flesh. That God who was not flesh took upon Himself flesh to do something that His eternality could not do. And that is to die. That's the whole reason He took on flesh. Um, So I I love the Christmas month. I love that our children come back from, whether it's college or whether it's from work, and they come back a lot of times and we get to enjoy that family time. But there's also a danger, and the danger is this. Every year, we put Jesus back where? We put Him back in a manger, don't we? And we set Him up with the other figurines in a nativity set, and there He is, uh, the infant of the group. And every year, it's almost like we default back and we place Him back in this cute little, aw, He's a baby stage. And that's a danger because we will miss what happened after the humiliation, and that is His exaltation. That right now, He's not an infant. You wouldn't go up and say, can I hold Him? He is an eternal God whom the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. And so as we consider God, eternal God, taking on human flesh, He really became human Let's not put him back and sort of have this, you know, this, this, this sweet sort of sentimental view of Jesus as this baby without remembering that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the tension John keeps. He'll say in John chapter 1 that this word became flesh and dwelt among us, but then eight signs that follow are about his divinity He's God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He can raise the dead. You feel that tension? So He's a baby. He was a baby, yes, but not like any other baby. This is the greatest rescue mission the world has ever seen. 
This is our God. God took on human flesh, but he was still Almighty God as a baby. That's a mystery, isn't it? That's really hard to comprehend. The Christmas story is the story of one amazing miracle. The one who is uncreated and eternal descended into his own creation and became what he created on the sixth day. You just take a moment and let that blow you away in the midst of all our Christmas celebrations. The eternal, uncreated one stepped down into his creation and became what he created. Why? If the wages of sin is death, how can God pay for your sin payment unless he did that? Can God die? Can the uncreated eternal God die? Not unless something amazing happens. And that is that He takes on human flesh and He willingly, because remember, He's still God, He willingly lays down His life. No one can take it from Him. Why? He's God. But He can die because He's what? He's human. And so He must lay down His life so that He can save you and me from our sin. This is an amazing story. It is a -a one-of-a-kind story. The Creator entered a young woman's womb to become what He made. He did so to take the curse of sin upon His own body, a curse He did not deserve. He took a body that could die so that we could be saved. Folks, that is amazing to consider. This is Christianity. If you take away the incarnation, if you take away the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that this is a free gift of grace to be received by faith alone, there is nothing distinctive about Christianity anymore. People can use the same terms, talk about similar ideas, but if you take away God was made flesh and He died for our sin... And He rose again victorious over the grave. And this cannot be worked for. This cannot be earned. has to be received as a gift. You are no longer talking about biblical Christianity. This is the amazing thing about what John presents. So I've asked you to turn to John chapter 20. The birth accounts of Jesus Christ are found in Matthew and Luke. We're going to look at John's account to keep this perspective during the holidays when we want to isolate Jesus as only a baby, I want us to provide a countertension that John does. Look at John chapter 20, verse 30. This is, this is a type of thesis statement that John provides. Jesus did many other miraculous signs. Okay, so we know that's what John's been recording. And he did these in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. John is not an exhaustive record of Jesus' miraculous signs. But these are written. These What? Signs, because that's what he's talking about. These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. First, we're going to consider what John says we should believe. What should we believe? I mean, how would what would you draw out of those two verses that we must believe? Well, we believe two things. Jesus is the Christ. 
and he's the son of God. Both of those are very important. Second, why should we believe? I mean, what is the proof? What is the objective, tangible, observable proof? Why should we even believe this? Because if this, if this is just a mystical fabrication, I might as well believe any other of a thousand mystical fabrications. Why this one? These are written. These what? These signs are written that you may believe. These provide what John is chronicling is an objective, observable reason for faith. And finally, the results of believing are this, that by believing, you may have life in his name. Chapter one, let's go back to chapter one of John. Chapter one contains the famous words of the prologue in the beginning was the word right away. I believe John intends he is deliberately designing the opening of this prologue to cast our minds back to the to to the Genesis account in the beginning. What John is hinting at already is that this is a gospel that will record the recreation of men and women by the word. Remember what happened in Genesis one? God spoke a word. And it came into existence. Now you have a word who is going to recreate because only God can create. You know, Satan never creates. Satan distorts. Satan, Satan perverts. Satan destroys. Satan kills. God creates. God gives life. God redeems. And you have now, you're being introduced to, with an allusion back to Genesis chapter 1, that this one is the Creator. In the beginning was the Word. And this Word, whoever that is, it's capitalized. This Word is going to recreate, which is good news. Now God is sending the Word. He's not just speaking a Word. Look at verse 2. Oh, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now you have another sort of word picture out of Genesis. All things were made through Him. All things were created by Him. That's what Colossians 1 says. Nothing was created that the Word, whoever this is, did not create. Why is that so important? Because in order for you to be saved... You need the Creator to do it. Only the Creator can allow you to be reborn. There is no rebirth just because 2019 you know, takes over 2018. Rebirth is a miracle that only the Creator God can do. That's what John is sort of setting the foundation for. If a recreation is going to happen and only God can create, logically, this person, the Word, must be God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Only the Creator can bring about a recreation. That's what John's preparing you, by the way, for the rest of his Gospel. That the work of Jesus is a divine activity. Look at verse 4. This is important. In Him, in the Word, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's another allusion to the thought world of Genesis 1. You have light. Remember this? God said what? He spoke. He said with a word, let there be, let there be light. And there was. 
And in, and in chapter 2, you see God breathe into the nostrils of Adam and he became a living soul. But the word is different. See, where Adam borrows life from God, where we borrow life from God, we don't have life in ourselves. We are dependent on our Creator. The word as Creator is self-sufficient. So if Jesus decides, if Jesus determines, and of course it's a, it's a God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as they determine to give life, Jesus can do that. Because He has life in Himself. Why is this so important? Because Isaiah says this, the people that are sitting in darkness will see what? A great light. Hebrews talks about us living in the shadow of death and the fear of death. And now you have the one who is life walking into the dungeon of our death. This is an amazing gospel account. By the way, in case you've had trouble identifying this word, look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John then moves to one of the most powerful pieces of evidence ever. He moves to eyewitness accounts. Look at what he says. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Right away. John chapter 1, verse 1. This Word is God. John says we have seen Him. We've seen His glory. We've seen what He's doing. This has to be the Son of God. He's full of grace and truth. Verse 15. John, this is John the Baptist, bore witness about Him. Verse 17. Are you ready for it? Because it's going to clearly identify him now. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. The rest of, the cha the rest of chapter 12 is Jesus' public ministry where seven of the eight miraculous signs take place. Then there's a change in verse 12. There's a turning point in the Gospel where before that, up, up, up from chapter 1 to chapter 12, you'll hear Jesus say this often, My time has not yet come. You remember this? You remember Him saying this? Okay, you don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. My time has not yet come. But in chapter 12, what He is often heard saying from 12 forward, He says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. From that point on, He's basically teaching in smaller groups, and it moves towards his passion, his death, and his resurrection. And finally, where we turn, chapter 20 is sort of John's thesis, and then 21 is what would be called you know, the conclusion to the story. So with that in place, let's go back to John's purpose statement. Listen to what he says. But these, these signs, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So what does it mean to believe that Jesus is God? Because that's the first thing John says these are written for. So that when you see these signs, you step away and you say, this is no mere man. Yes, He's a man. Yes, He's human. But He's more than human. He's God. That's what you're supposed to take away from these signs. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus. That He is God's, John 3.16, very familiar verse, He is God's only Son. Explaining what that means in, in chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus said, As the Father has life in Himself, so He granted, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. We've already talked about that. Ephesians 2, 5-6, listen to what this says. 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here we are dead. The Son has life in Himself and we are made alive together with Christ. Jesus claims of deity. That simply means that Jesus didn't hide the fact that He was God, that He's the Son of God. His claims were very easily understood. For instance, in chapter 518, His opponents were, were angry because they said this, He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So here we're not, you know, we're only five chapters in. And let me ask you, did the crowds understand what Jesus was teaching? Yes. Matter of fact, in chapter 19, verse 7, they're crying out, we have a law. And according to the law, He must die because He claimed to be the Son of God. You know, we're going to see this uh, in about 15 minutes. That if you only believe Jesus is a good moral man, that He's on the same level as Elijah and Moses and George H.W. Bush, you just believe He's a good teacher, He's a great instructor, maybe your pluralistic worldview comes in, and oh, He's probably one of the top three great worldviews that will get you to heaven. Do you know those statements are indicative that you are not born again? You may be in an evangelical church this morning. You may have sang every hymn and song. You may have opened your scriptures and knew exactly where John was located. But unless you believe Jesus is God, you are not born again. John wrote these things so that you may believe this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's part of what believing looks like. Matter of fact, Jesus says this, In John chapter 8, verse 58, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. And of course, an allusion back to Exodus where where God is introducing Himself to Moses. He said it this way in a statement that could not be misunderstood. John 10, verse 30, He says this, I and the Father are what? Are one. But that's only half of what we're supposed to believe. The other, the other half is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. So where, where the Son of God is His identity, to believe that He's the Christ means He has a work to do. So this is who He is and what He came to do. He is the Son of God and He is the Christ. He is the Anointed One, the Promised Deliverer. And as the Deliverer-Rescuer, He has a work to do that only He can do. And you've got to believe that too. That He is the Christ. In John chapter 5, 38-40, Jesus graciously exposes sin not to condemn us. Why does it say that? Even John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Later on He says, I, I don't come to condemn you, but to save you. Why would the Scripture say that? Here's why. We're already condemned. We were condemned with a curse in Genesis 3. Jesus didn't come to recurse us. Now, He came to remind us we're under a curse, but He didn't come to further condemn us. We're already condemned. We're already under a curse. We're already dead. He came to save us. That's what the Christ was sent for. The anointed deliverer-rescuer. And part of that is exposing religious hypocrisy. 
Jesus says this in John 5. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. That's the Messiah. That's the the rescuer. And listen to what it says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Right? The Jewish leaders, very familiar with the scriptures and thought because they had a knowledge of the Bible, of the scriptures, they were saved. They wouldn't use the word saved, but they were children of Abraham. And Jesus just totally undermines that. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. I mean, how would we apply that? I mean, you go to seven different Bible studies every week and you think because you do that, you're secure. And that may actually mean nothing. It is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. There's this personal relationship that must be received. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here's the danger. It's possible to love your Bible time and to love reading the Scriptures and to memorize large portions. But if they don't ever bring you to Jesus as a person, the Scriptures cannot save you. Only the Christ can save you. It's what the Scriptures point to. Jesus came not only to graciously expose sin, but to provide a sacrifice. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus for the first time, he says, the Lamb of God. Strange title to be the first things out of your mouth. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus knew exactly why He came. It was to die as a sin sacrifice for people who had no hope without that sacrifice. And He came to glorify the Father. As He enters Jerusalem, He finally announces the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This amazing story has at the center of it, not you and me primarily, but the Father and the Son. And then we are sort of eternal beneficiaries of what their work has done. Now, why should we believe? That's what we should believe. That Jesus is the Christ. He's on mission. There's no hope apart from Him. And He's the Son of God. This isn't just a man. He is God's Son. He, he is God. He and the Father are one. Here's why you should believe. I want to quickly tick through the seven signs. I know seven sounds like a big number at this point in the sermon. But hang in there. This is the, to me, this is like the brilliant part of John's writing. Okay, First, first sign. Because these are going to help support and push you to believe these two things. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Right. What, what is this? What's the purpose of a sign? Okay. Many of you have never been to Africa before. And as you approach a river and there is a sign and all it has is one word and a picture. Which is my kind of sign. And it says hippos. And, and you have actually done some study and you haven't just watched the Walt Disney World version of the hippos with the flattened teeth and the little tutu and, you know, you know, dancing and kind of cute. No, these are, these, are, these are voracious herbivores that will kill you. When you see the sign hippos, it's, it, now it's your decision. You can walk towards the edge of the water or you can take the warning. If you're trying to find, you know, you're on your way to Alabama, you know, and and all of a sudden, you see a sign that says San Diego, 50 miles. What does that sign 
do. It directs you, and even though initially there's like some discouragement and you know this, you know, I, you should have stopped two days ago at the gas station and asked for directions, right? We know what your voice that is coming from the other seat. Um, <laughs> you can either you can either push west and not arrive at Alabama, or you can turn around completely and continue on the right path. That's what signs do. Do you know the signs in John are similar? The signs are going to warn you. The signs are going to turn you around. You're going to be following this way, and that's called repentance. And you're going to say, I'm going to call my sin what it is, what God calls it, and I'm going to turn to Him. That's what signs do. Here's the first sign. Jesus turning the water into wine at a wedding. Something John calls, look at John chapter 2, verse 11. The first of His miraculous signs. He thus revealed His glory and His disciples put their faith in Him. Okay, one sign was enough for those whom Jesus called to follow Him. One sign was enough for them to place confidence or trust or faith in Him. By the way, that's what belief looks like. What does the sign mean? Because Jesus was not interested simply uh, in changing one liquid to another. Here's what Jesus is pointing out. He He has come to inaugurate a new covenant, a lot like a wedding covenant. But His covenant is going to involve the transformation of something that only He can do. I mean, when it's, when it's done, you're like, that had to be God. And so you've got this wedding scene, you've got the purification jars because this transformation must involve a cleansing. And it moves towards this transformation. Look at uh, verse 6, chapter 2. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Jesus is using some of these symbols and the wedding covenant and the purification jars and all these to say He is here to bring a new covenant that's going to bring cleansing and transformation. Now, the second sign in chapter 4, of course, John chapter 3, Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus that you must be born again. There must be a transformation. Right? And unless you're born again, you won't go to heaven. You won't see heaven. So this transformation has to take place. And oh, by the way, it has to be done by God. You can't do it yourself. Right? So as the wind blows, you don't see the wind. You see the effects of the wind. So is the new birth. And it has to be by God. Second sign, chapter 4. The Samaritan woman at the well. And so when you read, when you read chapter 2 and you see that transformation and you see Jesus offer new birth that can only be from God and you can't work for it, you're asking, this is good, right? This offer is amazing. Can I actually get it just by asking? Or what's the catch? Right? What, what's the deductible? What's the percentage? I mean, what do I have to do to get this? Chapter 4. Divinely picked woman who was not a moral champion in her community. That detail is on purpose, folks. Jesus says to her, if you knew who I really am, you would have asked for me living water. Okay? The transformation of John 2, the new birth of John 3, is it really that... Is it really that good that I just can get it for asking? Yes, if you knew who He is, 
You could ask Him for living water and guess what? He's going to give it to you. What does asking look like? Asking looks like believing He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. 4 verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Later on in that same chapter, chapter 4 is very long and it's because after the woman at the well, you have this other story where this official comes to Jesus and his son is about to die. All of a sudden, the leadership and the power and the influence takes second seat to his son who is about to die and he pleads with Jesus, come and help save my son. And what happens? Do you remember this? Does Jesus go with him? No, but he says that he simply says at that hour, your son will live. All, all he had to do was ask, right? All the Samaritan woman had to do was ask. All the man does is please save my son. Jesus says your son will live. He goes back later and he finds at the exact hour that Jesus said that his son was healed. Here's the point for us, because that's probably not going to happen consistently, that kind of a sign. That's the purpose of a sign. It was given on this occasion so that you can ask Jesus to save you. And even though he doesn't seem right here, he seems far off, he will save you. Isn't that amazing? Sign number three. The Sabbath healing at the pool called Bethesda. Remember, they're waiting around for this like mystical healing and there's a cripple man and he can't get in. Of course, it's just not fair. The water starts to move and he's got to he's got to try to hobble over there. He can't. And Jesus heals him. And it happens to be on a Sabbath. Jesus says this. This is the point, because then Jesus heals him and he doesn't even have to get into the pool. Remember this? A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. And those who hear will live. Jesus is claiming the same authority as the Father. And that you can be healed because you've asked Jesus for it. Now, the, greater, the, the bigger picture on that, of course, is that spiritual healing. Signs 4 and 5. See what we did? We're going we're to compress these two. The feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water... And of course, he feeds the 5,000. He sustains everyone in the wilderness. He provides them. There's plenty left over. There's sufficient for all. They're wondering, how is this new birth going to be given? How can I just simply ask this individual for the water of life or for healing and it happen? And all of a sudden, they see him walking on the water. He gets into the ship. He stills the storm, right? Or he, he, walks, he, he walks in and they confess his deity and he says this in the discourse, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's what transformation looks like. That's what new birth looks like. That's what healing, even though you've had all these other spouses and the one you're living with now is not your true spouse, you're not under covenant obligation with them. That's how even those, those, you know, those kinds of people, which are you and me, frankly, sitting on the well. That's how we ask. Believing because He is going to give His body as bread and His blood as drink as the new covenant in His blood for the forgiveness of many. So Jesus now in chapter 6 is making it very clear how this new life, how this eternal life, how this belief is going to be given. 
Sign six. And now the signs and explanations are in reverse order. You actually get the explanation before the sign. And this is Jesus as a light of the world. He says this in John 9, verse 4, As long as it is day, we must do the work of Him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Of course, the healing is that of a blind man. And it's Jesus alone who gives sight, who gives sort of this, this clarity. Uh, it, is the, it is a picture of the need for everyone to be set free from spiritual and moral blindness. And only Jesus can do that. The seventh sign and the final of the signs before Jesus' own resurrection, which some call the eighth sign of the book, um, brings us to the explanation where, where John places the good shepherd discourse of chapter 10, that he is, you know, he is the great shepherd, the good shepherd, and he places that next to him raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, you've got to get this one. Because here, here's what he's going to do. If Jesus can raise the dead, like He did with Lazarus, beyond proof, beyond even Jewish fables about what happens at death, if Jesus can genuinely raise the dead and He dies, what do you conclude from that? That His death is not what? His death is not an accident. He says this in the discourse. He's actually going to build up to this. He says in chapter 10, verse 18... No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So if Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, we can, we can be sure his death is not an accident, but because of his humanity, he is allowed to give up his life and die. But he still has authority to what? Take it up again. This is an amazing sign and discourse that leads us into then Christ's passion, His death, His resurrection, so that when He rises again the third day, what that does is it seals, it guarantees everything that you have seen in these seven signs. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. And isn't that one of the contradictions of life? People and countries and masses are not subject to Him. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. That's why He took on flesh and blood. That through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I just want to close by looking at Two people. You've got in, in, in the middle of all these signs, you have personalities. First of all, Nicodemus the Pharisee. Of course, we're familiar with the story. Chapter 3, he approaches at night. He's inquisitive, a bit skeptical, and he seems to leave confused. By chapter 7, he's publicly suggesting to the other Pharisees that Jesus deserves a fair trial. And it, probably in his own heart, 
that his claims deserve fair consideration. In chapter 19, he is present at Jesus' burial and he is helping prepare his body. What has John just shown you? Nicodemus went from, as, as one man has said, from skeptical to sympathetic to saved. You have this appropriate Jewish response, this appropriate religious response to Jesus, and that is one of belief and faith. Probably one of my favorites is Thomas the disciple. He ends up at the end of John's account. Let me just read the account as our conclusion. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, right? You would think if if anybody's not going to doubt and believe, who is it? One of the disciples. He was called the twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. So he was not there to benefit from the first eyewitness account. By the way, that's on purpose for all of us in here who are like Thomas. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, now here's his skepticism as a disciple. And he demands evidence. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Even after eyewitness account of his friends. Eight days later. So, I mean, Thomas is struggling with this. He's probably, you know, why didn't I get an eyewitness, you know, you know, you know, experience? And why did they get it? Why was I left? I mean, I don't know what's happening in eight days with Thomas. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. By the way, I do believe he's a believer. This is the difference between him and Nicodemus. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And this, this frames John's Gospel. Are you ready? Thomas, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You know right after he said that, it says Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So I guess the jury is still out on whether Thomas was truly born again at this point or not. But we do know this, Thomas, who was a skeptic, is now a believer. Very next verse. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Last question. Do you believe? Do you believe that transformation is necessary? That only God can do it? That Christ had to come and do that mission. That it's so radical, it's called new birth. That you can get it just for the asking. And, and you don't even have to see Jesus personally like the official and like Thomas, kind of. Blessed are you if you believe without seeing. Let's pray.